Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Sean McNicholas. He's an ADHD therapist and mindset coach working with clients around the world. He works with various issues associated to ADHD, such as anxiety, addictions, and stress. Sean's skill sets include being a life coach and a clinical trauma professional using various psychotherapeutic modalities, such as hypnotherapy, CBT, NLP, and RTT. Sean has much experience with ADHD, both personally and as a father of a child experiencing their own challenges with ADHD. Therefore, he has a vast amount of compassion, empathy, and knowledge to help people understand more about what happened to them and why they do the things they do. Sean is now a trustee of a charity organization that is transforming the criminal justice services to be more compassionate to and understanding of people with ADHD. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean McNicholas. Hey, Sean. Hi, how are you, Roman? I'm doing great. Thank you for being on the podcast. You're welcome. I just want to say I was blown away by a list you had sent me when you reached out. And you mentioned, I can't even fathom everything you've been through, but you've been a, a, a male nurse in London, you've been a, a nightclub uh, promoter, you've been jumping out of airplanes, you uh, hung out with criminals, learned from them, you uh, uh, had childhood traumas early on. I mean, it was just a fascinating list to read. And I was like, I, I got to talk to this person. So thank you for making it happen. And I just want to start off uh, by asking you a question that I ask so many guests is to you, Sean, what is this thing that we call ADHD? Very interesting question. So for me, it's, I always say that we are people that think, feel, and behave differently, just like many other people. That doesn't make us any less. You know, as Temple Grandin says, famous person with autism, we're not less, we are just different. I like that. Yeah, I certainly respect Temple Grandin and a beautiful film. I don't remember what the name of the film. I think it was called, called Temple, Temple Grandin. Grandin. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's so obvious. But yeah, I remember watching that and just being like, whoa, way to turn your, quote, weaknesses into strengths, right? Or own it. Mm. Um, what do you, so you're an ADHD coach. You're a, uh, a, a, a therapy professional, if I call you that. But you're... You're very well versed in working with people who are dealing with challenges, whether it's stress, anxiety, ADHD. Talk to me a little bit about um, how you got there. And you can take us as far back as to your childhood, whatever you'd like to share about how you think childhood trauma impacted you and when you eventually discovered ADHD and then perhaps take us to your son and then how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, so growing up and even going back to before I was born, my parents 
um, they they were originally from Ireland. They moved over to London in the 60s. Um, at that time, the there was a conflict with Britain and Northern Ireland. So it was very taboo for people, Irish people living in London. They had a hard time. It's like um, someone from ISIS now living in London. So Irish people were known as terrorists. So they st stayed in their own communities. They were hardworking people, but their culture was very much around pubs. So going to work, smoking and drinking. Um, and I now know many of my clients come from Irish backgrounds. There's a lot of childhood and transgenerational trauma attached to that as well. Um, so when I was born in London, I came into this world um, from stress. My mum was stressed. My dad was stressed. Uh, the fact that she was drinking and smoking through pregnancy told me she was under stress. Um, through childhood, um, it was me, my brother and sister growing up. Um, it was it was okay at the very beginning. My dad went to work. He he got injured. He had an illness, and he was very ill. Couldn't work no more. He was a drunk. He used to drink a lot, um, which never helped. Um, and he passed away when we were five years old. So that could be T1, or there could be T's before that. Who knows? Um, that left a poor, uneducated woman to raise three children by herself. She had no family support herself. They were back home in Ireland. Um, she couldn't cope, so she became a very angry and abusive alcoholic. So again, we had to live in this in this world of uncertainty, uh, dysfunction, chaos, you know, the, the unknowns all the time. Um, so growing up through school years, um, they were quite tough because we knew that we were um, the poorest, we struggled, um, and my mother didn't step up and parent us. We were left to be raised by the, the systems, whether it's the school or anywhere else outside the school. Um, so by the time I got to being 12, 11, 12 and 13, moving into secondary school, and um, I learned that my mum didn't care about me, so why should I care about anything? So I started to take up time off school. And even though I was a smart kid, even though I was, uh, I knew I was intelligent, I knew I could find solutions to problems. So I remember being in maths lessons, for example, and the teacher would set up a, uh, a sum for the group to answer. And I would get the answer, but not use the formula he was trying to teach. So even back then, I remember the teacher saying to me, how did you get the answer that way? What made you think like that? And I did not know the answer. But somehow I was, I was really thinking outside the box. Um, so growing up through those years, there were struggles because even though I was a smart kid, I had no support to encourage me into education and never did my homework, um, just stayed out. So I didn't get up in the mornings, didn't go to school. So my mom didn't care if I went to school or not. Um, no breakfast, no food. So again, it was like survival mode. Um, and through those years, I just learned that school wasn't important for me. School wasn't for me. I was constantly getting in trouble, being disruptive in the class, um, causing problems with the teachers. So I was constantly being given detention after school. Or well, I went to a really uh, small Catholic school in Kensington in London. It's very strict. So if you were really misbehaving, you would have to go to school on a Saturday in your school uniform called Saturday Detention. Um, and you would have to sit in a room with a teacher who was doing their work and have to sit there for four hours in silence. Now imagine an ADHD kid having to sit in silence for four hours. 
And this happened to me so frequently, they called me the Saturday kid because it happened so often. It just become the norm for me. Um, so through those younger years, I learned I had to survive. I started to work from 12 years old, working in a paper round. I then worked on a market stall on the weekends just to do anything to get money to survive. And I set up my own small tuck shop business, which is a small, sweet, sweet business at school, just to make some money. And I learned to hustle. I learned to survive that way. Um, and then as you went into the 14, 15, 16, you start to be more curious. You start to explore. And all of a sudden, alcohol came into my life. Then it'd be going out clubbing. Then you're introduced to drugs. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I like this. This does something good for me. So um, when I left school, my exams weren't, weren't too good. Um, I went back to the school because I didn't even know what to do about careers afterwards. So normally you can study for another two years to do your A-levels in the sixth form. Um, I knew I left school. Summer holidays finished. I did not know what to do next. So I went back to sixth form to ask if I can come back. And the headmaster said, school is not for you. So that was another hint for me. So I was just on the street, really. I was just buying and selling stuff. And I got involved in drugs, um, got in trouble with the police, um, then just um, started to drive cars, uh, driving offences, speeding, anything that was thrill-seeking. Um, I went back into college to study because what I, one thing I didn't know I liked to do was working with children. I did some youth work in the evenings, helping and coaching some young children. So I thought to myself, this is something I like to do. So I went back to study in the evenings to become a nursery teacher. Um, so I did that. And uh, what was really interesting, even when I walked into uh, day one of this uh, induction, there was a room with a big teacher at the front and probably about 40 to 60 women. And they said to me, I think you're in the wrong class. And I said, no, this is for nursery teaching. And then she was shocked and said, yes. So I love that kind of work. I love working with children. That's when I first started to get into psychology because there was a module on psychology about Freud and so on. So I was very curious about how the mind works. Um, whilst I was studying there, I was promoting nightclubs. So with the nightclubs, I was very good at, at networking. I was a very sort of popular person. I can go out and speak to people, network with people. So I would get people into clubs and be paid for it be remunerated. Um, so I was doing that alongside the nursery work I was doing. Um, the night, nightclub manager really took a liking to me, said, look, you're really good at this. I want to give you a full-time job. And the money was really good. Um, what that meant was I couldn't continue working in the nursery because even though I loved the job, the pay was so bad. So I had to make a choice and I thought, I'm going to move over here. Working in a nightclub, loads of new people, flashing lights, music, stimulation. Every day was a mystery. So, of course, I was just drawn to that. Um, so I carried on doing that for many, many years, ended up managing nightclubs, um, then owning nightclubs in the UK and in uh, overseas. So we moved out to a place called Marbella. Um, it's, a, it's on the south coast of Spain, really well-known place where people go away to go to, to nightclubs. So I was living there for a while. Um, through that, that whole period of my 20s and 30s, I was in a number of different relationships and it just kept breaking down time and time again. Did not know why, but I'd never learned my lesson. Um, I was spontaneous. I was, I was a risk taker. I was just doing all these things which were normal to me. Anything that stimulated me, anyone that was chaotic and dysfunction, I would go towards that person. Anytime someone said to me, do you fancy going snowboarding? Do you fancy jumping out of a plane? Do you fancy going uh, racing around a, a car track? I would do that without thinking. Um, then I got to 
my late 30s, I started to find myself burning out. I was drinking, I was taking drugs, and you know, nothing was really helping me, and my life was just spiraling down um, to the point where I just thought, I've had enough of this. I need to come back to London. I need to grow up. I need to get a real job. So I've, I left the nightclub industry. I moved back to the UK. Back then, I had two young children at the time. I was married um, and started looking for a normal job. So I knew some guys that worked in Chelsea. Um, they were in, involved in finance. So I asked them if they could um, give me a role. They said, we're setting up a new company. So I, I got involved in that, invested in that. I uh, started to learn uh, about business and about finance, about how to manage money. I never knew once about how to manage money because through those decades, I earned so much money, I had nothing to show for it because I was buying the big cars, I was buying the big houses, I was driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches, but every time I was losing money all the time. So I was just living in the moment. I was never taught about investing, any sort of um, financial advice, never given any guidance whatsoever. Um, so yeah, moved into finance. Um, when I got back to the UK, the, my marriage, um, it just broke down. So we we agreed to um, divorce, which left my two young boys living with their mum, which is very heartbreaking. Um, and then I moved from finance into tech. Um, again, I had an idea um, about a mobile game that um, gave away real gold bars, something never happened before. So it's a mobile game that was about a gold miner that goes into different mines and whatever gold nuggets it collects in the game, you could convert to real gold bars. So this was happening in 2014. And now we've got cryptocurrency. We, know, we now have NFTs. So real world rewards was something that I, I created um, six, seven years ago. And that's what, um, what I was featuring in Forbes for, being an entrepreneur. Um, so yeah, there's been lots of ups and downs. Um, all the way through that period when I was in my 40s was I was studying, I was keen to get back into self-help, personal growth and understand about psychology because I really wanted to help people. I knew I could help people. I was a real people's person. And through that process in my 40s, started to learn more about ADHD. That's the first time people start to talk about it. What is it? How does it impact people? And so on. So I started to learn more about this. Um, and, that's, and that's my journey. So I studied, become a therapist. Um, I was an RTT therapist, an LP practitioner, CBT practitioner. I then become a clinical trauma professional. So helping people with, with deep traumas, talking about addictions. Um, then I learned to find my tribe, find people like me, people with that ADHD, because I live, eat and breathe it. My son also has ADHD as well. And as a result, I started again to become a professional clinical ADHD provider. So I'm an ADHD therapist and ADHD coach as well. So I have ADHD, I have a child that's ADHD, and I live and breathe ADHD now as a therapist. And here we are. Yeah, what a fascinating story. I mean, you certainly have experienced a lot. And as you were talking, it was interesting. I went over my life and I have a very similar uh, sort of string of of events. And, you know, I was a... I worked for Club Med on the Canary Islands and, you know, I had lots of fast cars and like I could sort of see a similarity, right? Um, no wonder. Now, my question is, at what point did you, did you self-diagnose? Were you diagnosed? How old were you? How was that moment or how did that come about? It, it happened over a period of, period of years, really. I I always knew... I was 
I was different. I always knew that. I always knew I thought differently. And I always knew I felt differently. You know, growing up with my brother and sister, I knew I was different. Um, so it was for probably the last seven, eight years in particular, when I've really dived into ADHD and understanding what it is specifically. Like I've studied with like the godfather of ADHD, Dr. Russell Barkley. But I've also studied with the people like Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, you know, so I've done compassionate inquiry with him and um, you know, understanding more about tra trauma. Bruce Lipton with epigenetics, epigenetics Dr. Stephen Porges with uh, poly polyvagal theory, and so on. So I, I wanted to be more rounded, to understand, to be more curious, to learn as much as I can from a medical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, to understand what this is. Because too many people, it's, too, it's, it's many different things. And people want to stay on the medical side. People want to stay on the spiritual side. So I was very curious myself just to learn as much as I could and then to have a much more rounded and open view about it. It's interesting that you mentioned that, right? Just for our listeners. So Russell Barkley, we would call it more on the medical psychiatric side, pro-medication, right? Whereas you have Gabor Mates and people who are more on the uh, the cause could be trauma, or most likely they would say it is trauma. So where do you, where, where have you landed? And take me into your, uh, your perspective around uh, ADHD, and 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 maybe even apply it for us to your life, where you feel your ADHD came from, and your son's ADHD came from. If that makes sense. Oh, that's that's a minefield. That's a minefield. <laughs> I like I will, mind fields. I like mind fields. You you step on as many minds as you feel comfortable stepping. On, I will say that. <laughs> depending who you talk to, and depending who you're taught by, you're here on one side. It's genetic. On the other side, it's trauma. It's brought on by stress, dysregulation, and it's understanding what happens. Um, and sometimes you hear one side. Um, completely um disregards what the other side's saying sometimes i believe it's in the middle you know you know you know the saying you know there's two sides to the story and the truth sits somewhere in the middle so you know from one side you will hear it's genetic from the other side you'll hear it can't be genetic well i'm not saying it can't be genetic but saying they haven't found the gene there may be some risk genes associated to it which are all related to dopamine um, and you'll talk, you'll hear Bruce Lipton talk about epigenetics and uh, the gene, gene, gene expression, and it's been triggered by trauma. You know, so there are many variables, or trauma can upregulate or downregulate the gene. So, and also you hear, you know, people talk about people don't like Gabor. And I ask them, why do you not like Gabor Mate? They say, because he blames the parents. Now, Anyone listens to your podcast with Gabor Mate or anywhere else or The Myth of Normal on YouTube, you'll hear him constantly say it's not fault of the parents. There's no one to blame. These are unintended consequences of what was happening at that time in their life. Now, it could be anything. And remember, trauma is not about not only about the bad things that happened. It can also be about the good things that never happened in your life. Yeah. You know, in that, in that moment, Johnny did not get the love and attention that he wanted from his mum because she was in the kitchen cooking dinner in that moment johnny felt unloved he felt unwanted and then there may be a traumatic imprint for johnny in that moment causing him distress now he may be three years old his uh, cognitive part of the brain has not even developed so he's in that state of emotion in that limbic area 
and being in that emotional state, he has no reasoning. You know, he cannot have no logic to understand what's going on. So the emotional state is making him believe that mummy's not here. That means that he's not wanted. He's unlovable. And and this is where these these traumatic imprints can start from. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, I, I like what you're saying because I do agree that Gabor Mate, if anything, he's always the one that says that uh, parent blaming is unethical. You know, it's just... And, but there's a difference between blame and also pointing out a responsibility, right? That's a different, and I think he does point out sort of a, let's call it a unaware parenting due to our unhealed trauma and our limitations that we're not aware of. So there's no blame. And at the same time, there's room for improvement, right? Well, look, let's talk about trauma. It's not about the event. It's not about what happens. It's the emotional response that causes a perception of what the person believes at that time in their lives. Based on the neurodevelopment of the brain at that stage in that, in that young person's life. Okay, yeah. so um, when it comes to issues like this, and so you're here on the left side, I mean, I see like a, a YouTube post um, with Dr. Barclay specifically saying, Gabor Mate says this and it's not true. And he says, it's not true. It's not the parent's fault. Now, I've been in group discussions and with um, with Dr. Russell Barkley, he says, other than genetics, it can be when the mother has been smoking, the mother has been drinking through pregnancy. It could be due to some form of poisoning. There could be a brain injury, which means there could be a bang to the head. That could have been the child ran into a cupboard. That could have been the child was dropped at some stage, you know. And when I have these group discussions, someone says to me, well, could that not be bad parenting? You know, so it's all subjective. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and by bad parenting, you know, it's funny. I was watching a uh, show, I believe it was one of those Dr. Phil episodes where they had a Pfizer executive on and she kept saying, it's not due to bad parenting. That's a myth. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's not due to bad parenting, but it can be due to unaware parenting or unconscious, right? Because the buzz term conscious parenting is is now louder than ever. And I would have to agree that uh, it's not really A, what happened, and B, it's how we emotionally respond, but also how did the parents respond or not respond? And so there's a whole family system that I think that we avoid looking at, or we don't get the chance to look at if we just label and medicate away, right? And we never go deeper. And then you've worked with clients, I'm sure you go deeper into, uh, and perhaps take us there. Like how, how are you different from someone else who's like, oh, well, you have ADHD. I, I would take meds and, you know, do a little bit of therapy and, and, and just deal with it, cope with it. Right. How do you approach, um, a family that comes to you or say if you have a child with ADHD or an adult, right? Um, but just going back to your point, it's really important to, to stress that, first of all, from a parent or anyone else that causes a child to feel traumatic, it's all about intention, where the intention is, was it intentional or was it unintentional? And second of all, it's the, the awareness of the caregiver afterwards. You know, so for example, mummy and daddy could be arguing in, in the lounge and that child is just fearful thinking they don't love me. Someone's going to leave me. That means I'm going to feel abandoned. You know, this fear of rejection, this is a ma major trait for, for ADHD, people with ADHD, rejection and sensitivity. Um, so 
the parents are unaware that Johnny can hear the argument in the, you know, because they're in just this state of emotion themselves. They've got their own adult discussions going on. But as a result, Johnny has created this fear, which could lead to some form of trauma, you know. Um, and then is it, then it's the case of, does Johnny speak to the parents and say, look, you're, you're scaring me, you're making me feel worried about you're going to leave me. Is there an awareness for the parents to know that Johnny's aware of this and he has this trauma inside? You know, so there's many considerations and many factors. It is so multifaceted as to what happens and why and when and the impact it has on that young mind yeah. moving forward. And, and, you know, it's it's I hear this all the time. I just had somebody write to me yesterday saying, well, yeah, but how do you explain that my sister and I both grew up in the same household and, and I ended up with ADHD and she didn't, you know, and it's such it's such a valid question. And at the same time, and I'm sure you agree no child ever has the same childhood, even if you have the same parents and you live in the same household, right? Yeah. So, so think about that. So, my brother is older than me. So, when he was born into the world, he had two parents that were loving and cherishing him all for him. Then I turn up and steal those parents away from him. And as the years pass by, those parents, they go through their own changes and circumstances, whether it's work, financial, social, whatever it's going to be. So the parents that show up for me are the different parents that showed up for the first ball and then, then for my sister afterwards. So that's that's the first thing. Um, sorry, remind me, my memory's just gone there. Working memory. Um, yeah, so um, siblings in the household. So I can give an example. I can give an example that's got nothing to do with ADHD whatsoever. I dealt with a client and she is now an adult and she was struggling with OCD and an eating disorder. She's a twin and um, her twin does not have OCD. Her twin does not have an eating disorder. And with work I do, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist as well. And with the work I do, especially with trauma, we go back to the time and the place which triggered off this cause for eating, this eating disorder. It's all about not being in control. Uh, and that's what OCD is all about. So part of the fear, fear family, um, and anxiety family. Um, and we got back to a scene where she had her nan coming to visit them. And when the nan opened the front door, when they opened the front door for her nan, she went to give nan a cuddle. And then looked at this young girl and said, looked at her and said, oh, you must be the fat one. And from that moment, that young girl was like, what does that mean? And that was the beginning of the eating disorder. That was the beginning of control. That was the beginning of the OCD. So in in your life as young people, you have different parents, you have different teachers at school, you've got different friends. So your whole experience is completely different. You're around different people at different times, talking about different things, coming to your own perceptions of the world. You know, because we all have our own view or map of the world. Yeah. So everyone's experience is completely different. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. Great example. And I think that brings up this point that I always make is that, you know, um, something happens in our childhood and I'm simplifying now. It's not usually just one event, but it can be one very strong capital T traumatic event, right? Something happens and we then, and this is where Gabor Mate comes in, is like, we then create a coping mechanism to deal with that discomfort, right? The feeling unsafe, feeling unloved, whatever, feeling rejected. We create a coping mechanism. And I do believe that those co coping mechanisms then, if eventually not healed or, or transformed, turn into addictions. And 
I've said this recently that I do believe that ADHD to, in my, this sounds crazy, but is in a way an addiction, a coping mechanism to not be in the present moment, but to be over there that feels more safe or more fun or more exciting, right? What do you, how do you look at this whole coping mechanism theory that uh, Gabor Mate talks about? Well, every person that I've worked with ADHD, they all agree that they're people pleasers. And the reason why they're people pleasers is because when they grew up, they feared rejection. So it's understanding where that rejection sensitivity comes from. Um, what that means is, is that for them to feel like they belong and to be part of the tribe, they may have to change who they are because being themselves, being the authentic person may not be enough. So they change who they are. And that's okay when it happens once or twice, but when you're learning each and every time that to fit in, you have to present yourself in a way that they want you to be, you then become a comedian. So these coping strategies, whether it's to, um, to get a job, to, to be part of the party, you know, to be in the football team, you are doing anything to please. And, that's a coping me mechanism to feel safety. It's all about safety. You, you know, like Dr. Stephen Porges, polyvagal theory, it's all about safety and protection. You know, so as you get older, and with, with addictions, I have a different viewpoint because when I, I deal with many clients with addictions, I have addiction workshops, and the addiction is not the problem. The addiction is trying to solve the problem that's underneath. The problem is the feeling that you are unable to deal with. Yeah. You know, so what you do is that when you feel that feeling consciously or subconsciously, you try to move away from it. You try to move away from this open wound because it's too painful for you. So what you do is you move towards pleasure, away from pain, and you mask it in some way. You right. mask it with alcohol by numbing it. You mask it with drugs to numb it or to feel alive or to escape or to give you some kind of comfort or to relax. But those addictions are there for a reason. There's always a reason why you do the things you do. Right. And there's, I think, uh, well said, I think the coping mechanism of ADHD then chooses an addiction, right? For example, oh, I can't be uh, quiet right now because I'm bored or I'm uncomfortable or whatever. So let me go drink. Let me race a car. Let me jump out of an airplane, right? Which that will distract for a while. But then you're right back at the moment of silence with yourself of quietness of like, oh, shit, I'm uncomfortable. What do I do next? Right? It's just a continuous uh, numbing out or checking out, right? But it doesn't have to be so extreme. It doesn't have to be the, the drugs sure, and jumping sure. up and playing. It can be just tuning out. It can be just, you know, by spending time on Netflix and get lost down that rabbit hole, you know, all of a sudden you are moving away from some discomfort inside. So it's trying to understand what's going on underneath. Why do you feel this way? And sometimes the only way to discover that and understand it and change the perception is doing the work that I have with my clients. So by going back into those deep traumatic experiences, but we do it in a nice, soft, gentle way, um, we, we, we review the scene now as an adult. We're older, we're wiser, we've got more life experiences. We now look back in the child, when they experience these things in their lives, they're very egocentric. Every time something happens, they blame themselves. It must be me, I must do something wrong. That means that I'm unlovable. That means I'm unwanted. That means that I don't matter. And the truth is, Mum and dad could be having a discussion about finances, got nothing to do with Johnny in that spare room. But now they look back as an adult and they can now see it wasn't about them. They were loved because then I say, what does Johnny want to hear right now in that moment? And he wants to hear from his mum, it's okay, Johnny, this has nothing to do with you. You are safe, we love you and everything's fine. You know, and this is, 
It's about bringing that inner child. You hear, you hear all the time, inner child work. But a lot of people are still living in the past. A lot of people are still living in survival mode. And when you live in survival mode, you're like you're in a state of fear and worry. You know, you're not living in the present moment. And that means you can't create this amazing future for yourself. Yeah, that's well said. And of course, for somebody who's, uh, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, where it's hard to stay in the moment, right? It's hard not to want to check out. Um, and that that has been my challenge as well. Like I have so many ideas, I have so many things I want to do. And when I'm in the moment and I have to do something like left brain, I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'd rather do something right brain. Let me let me go record a podcast. I don't want to deal with the taxes right now. Right. But that discipline to just sit myself down and actually say, you know what, I'm safe. Uh, this is going to be fine. I, I'm just if I need help, I'll ask for help if I need to do it in 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 two goes, I'll do the rest tomorrow. Like, you know, figuring out a system that works for me now. And yes, I have to make a tea and I have to, you know, turn on the candle and it has to be the perfect environment. Uh, but whatever works, right? We're all individuals. We're unique. Whatever works to, like you said, to be in that moment to create the future we want to create versus living uh, from the fear in the past. And here's the thing, and I may have mentioned this before, but recently I looked up the word anxiety in German because I grew up in Switzerland. And when I left at the age of 20, there was certain words like my vocabulary in German hadn't grown, right? It was limited. And then I had suddenly a new vocabulary in English and that expanded. So I was like, what is anxiety in German? And you know what it is? Fear. And I was, it's like, a I was like, wait, so we have anxiety disorders, meaning we have like too much fear or uncontrollable fear. And I'm like, well, that sounds more manageable than anxiety. You know, that's like a, whoa. So it just was a kind of a light bulb moment for me. Like, oh, okay, how do I reduce my fear? And how would yeah. you say, how do you do that with, with yourself or your clients or your son? How do you reduce fear? It's desensitizing. So we, we can be hypersensitive. So I have ADHD clients that are really like sensitive to hearing. You know, so they're constantly just tuning into everything around them. Uh, or it can be hypersensitive where the senses are dulled down because just to protect them in some way. Now, when you talk about anxiety, it's, it's an irrational fear. Now, what it means is that you are in some, for some reason, there has been a horror movie triggered off in your mind to believe it's going to happen. Uh, so therefore, your body starts to respond in a way. So the heart rate starts to beat. You start getting sweaty and clammy. Your muscles tense and, and your, um, your, your breathing gets shallow. You know, this brain fog, this confusion, because all of a sudden you're in a state of fear and therefore you can't think logically. Now, I think there's a big crossover with that with ADHD. And I think that even though it's very interesting that I'm very fearless, so I have no issue dropping, jumping out of a plane, but at the same time, there's also this anxiety, this worry. And, you know, when you have Johnny in the classroom and everyone's in, a, in, a, in an English lesson, and outside in the distance, you can hear a siren and everyone's paying attention to the teacher, but Johnny can tune into that siren. And it's like, why is he distracted by that? Now, he could just have this, you know, inattentiveness. There could be a distraction just by any sound. But does that sound mean something more to him? You know, does it cause fear inside him? Because it's come from somewhere. Yeah. And I mean, I know it's very complex. I mean, we can't touch upon the entire texture and complexity of this topic, but I do feel like, tell me what you think, but there's the, the, the sort of, um, 
childhood trauma, ingrained fear, and or you know that that's that's a reflex. It's automatic. But then it doesn't help that we live in a world where fear mongering and constant, uh, you know, disasters and and the future doesn't look bright and climate change and war. If someone watches the news and stays in these social media circles where that's added to the already existing childhood trauma, ingrained fear, I mean, I could see why anxiety is a is an issue. You know, hmm. I'm sure you see that too. Well, going back to Dr. Stephen Porges and 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 the like, it's it's all about high levels of stress. Were you born into a world of high level of stress? You know, if you are if you're born into a world like my parents and they were in high levels of stress. I cannot regulate myself. I'm a baby. So I have to co-regulate myself through my parents. Now, if they're regulated, I'm regulated normally. But if they're in high levels of stress, I am co-regulating with a high stress person. You know, so therefore I'm already living in a high state of stress. You know, so therefore more cortisol, you know, adrenaline. Right. You know, and through pregnancy, if you have high levels of cortisol and adrenaline um whilst pregnant. That fetus, that unborn child, it will start to um, impact the development of the brain. It starts to impact yeah, the issue yeah. of that young child. And I, no? just want, I just want to point out, and I say this a lot in my podcast episodes, is that I do believe that workaholism is one of the most underrated um, addictions where we even joke about it. Oh, yeah, I'm a workaholic and I, you know, the grind, I love my, you know, work, I'm always at work. But that, what you just said, right, that that cortis those cortisol levels that stress that gets handed down not just in, in utero right but also just in life if you're a two-year-old three-year-old four-year-old like that stress that constantly comes home with the parents yeah. and right uh with money stress with worldly stress with other stress i mean mm -hmm. it's gotta create a nervous system that's always in high alert you know yes yeah. right well gabor mate is a self-confessed workaholic. And the reason why he's recognized this after years of work on himself, he realized he did it to be important and to get significance. So these are all about these unmet needs. Uh, and when you talk about high levels of stress, you're talking about hypervigilance. So we are always on high alert, you know, and again, yeah. we have this uh, subconscious um, radar scanning around that amygdala is just waiting for the next thing to happen. You know, um, the coulds and the mites and the what, what ifs, yeah. You know the uncertainty, and this is the this is the thing. So, if you're anxious, you have anxiety. When you have ADHD, you have anxiety. So you have to sit in that sweet spot of not being too overwhelmed, but also not being underwhelmed, because then you tune out and you just lose focus and concentration on what you're trying to do. And that's why, going back to your point about how do we how do we manage this? For me, and what I've learned and what I what I show my clients is that we need to take we need to get our our own heads. We need to write stuff down. We need to start prioritizing stuff. Prioritizing stuff. It's all well and good writing lists, but we're we're very good at we're very good at looking at things and listing things. But unless we put some priority in there with urgency and importance, we just jump from one thing to another. So we need to write this down and have like I've got a whiteboard. It's actually called the Eisenhower Matrix, where you have these four quadrants of important, urgent, not important. Uh, uh, urgent, urgent, not important, and not important, not urgent. And it's only when you write stuff down like that, you start to see yourself, what do you need to focus on? Otherwise, the moment my wife says to me, oh, the bin, the bin needs emptying, I'll forget about this amazing project I'm working on and just just do it. Yeah, yeah. I. It's interesting. 
I totally agree. I have a, a my calendar. When people look at my calendar and, and iCal, they're like, oh my God, like you're so full. Well, it's because part of it is my to-do list. Like when it's a priority, I put it in, I think about, will I really do it at that time? Or do I need a half hour extra after this interview to do this or to do that, right? And I've learned to make it work for myself. Some people can't work that way. Um, but I, I agree because I think the, the moment you talked about the bin, I was like, oh, wait, I need a dog tag for our dog because he lost the dog tag. And if he gets lost and they don't know where, you know, so, but it's good to um, have a system and customize it for yourself or your child. Right. And that'll mm -hmm. just, that'll just be like anyone else's, like if somebody has a personal trainer or right, whatever works for us, sticky notes and, and so forth to organize our lives. And it takes a lot of, a lot of trials. I mean, it took me a while and I'm 53. It took me a while to get to a place where I'm like, okay, I think I have my system. Right. And mm -hmm. my son, my son is in high school now and he's, he's got the app for the school homework and he's kind of working, finding his system. And I'm really proud of him for, for getting the homework done and knowing his grades and, you know, and he's only 14. So hopefully by, by 25, he has a system that works for him and he can create, you know, produce results and, and feel like, I, I, yeah, I have this thing called ADHD, but really I don't. I'm just, I'm managing it and I'm doing the best I can, right? Yeah, it's understanding as well what you're managing. You know, there's all different, people have different traits for ADHD and there's strengths and weaknesses to that as well. Um, when you think about stuff like meditation uh, and when you learn to meditate, first of all, it's all about this term, train the puppy, learn to train the puppy. That puppy will wander away and run away and you've just got to keep bringing it back. And this is what we've got to do with ADHD as well. We've got to train the puppy because you can manage yourself and you do become more calm and more organized, but it, it's it's work. You have to put the work in. Um, but by doing so and becoming more organized and having structure, routine, some planning, um, your days do become easier. They do become more productive because what you're realizing is that by having a schedule, by having every minute of every day filled with something, knowing you have to do something, there's no distraction. You're not going down any rabbit holes, which is easy for us. So we have to also be mindful of, for example, mobile devices. We need to know we know what they can do for us. So when when I'm working, the phone goes onto airplane mode. It goes into another room because even if it pops up and flashes, um, that's me gone. That's I'm just thinking, okay, what is that? Because then this is what anxiety is. What is that? That could be a problem. You know, I need to know what that is to calm myself down, you know, the uncertainties. But if it's out of sight, out of mind, then it's no problem. Yeah, well said. And I think what, I, what I'm hearing is that, uh, maybe not what I'm hearing, but what I'm hearing plus what I'm making it mean is that all humans, you know, we're, we're, we have certain challenges in life. And it could be like you and I's or our son's challenges is that, if we don't stay organized, we don't get anything done. We lack the confidence. We lack the results. Life spirals downward, right? So that's our challenge, right? You can call it a, a disorder. You can call it a whatever. Then there's other people who, who have other challenges, right? Who are like totally, can totally focus, but they overeat. They always, they constantly eat and they can't not eat. Well, they have to create a system if they want to thrive, right? That allows them to not succumb to that, that addiction. So I think I like what you said. If we look at it in a way of like, how can I organize my life so that I can be successful and productive? Then it's really just a, 
a fun challenge of like, you know, like you said, study with different people, look at different systems, you know, and find what works for you. And I think you and I are probably still looking for ways to improve certain things, right? Like how can I have even more results in this area? So that that said, I want to, I want to talk about you specifically. You also uh, lead a lot of workshops um, as a life coach. So how did you build build that business? Uh, what do you love about it? And what are you focusing on right now teaching? Uh, I, I know specifically men, there's a workshop coming up that you were doing in Ibiza, which sounds amazing. So how did you get there? How do you make it work? And, and what do you love about it? It's, it's essentially an evolution. So it's an, essentially an evolution of just working and doing the therapy work. Then I was offered a role to work uh, with a company for addiction workshops. Um, which I believe most of those adults have ADHD. Uh, they're just undi- undiagnosed. So there's a real crossover anyway. Um, and the kind of clients that were coming to me based on reading my bio, they were kind of connected to me in some way anyway. So as I moved on to the the, AD, the specialist ADHD work, um, when clients come to me for ADHD therapy, especially coaching, coaching is about creating a, a better future for yourself. And once we spend an hour working together, I, we, we understand very quickly there's childhood traumas, there's loads of issues from the past. And I said, look, we can start doing coaching, building this future for yourself, but we're building it, building it on an unstable foundation. How about let's go back and let's clear the mess up. Let's just, let's just um, uh, reframe the past, let the past go, so you don't need to carry any of this baggage with you anymore. You know, we're all unique individuals, so everyone's got to be treated differently, and everyone comes with their own different story, everyone comes with their own history. And um, it's very interesting when you have um, Tom Hartman, another one of your guests, when when he talks about um, hunters and farmers. Um, we are all unique individuals. So everyone comes with a different story, um, different things happen in their lives. And this is not – I've got clients that have had amazing upbringings, you know, from very privileged backgrounds. But things have happened in the past. It could be they went to boarding school where they were bullied. Something would have happened. You know, it doesn't mean you've come from poverty and single parents and someone's passed away and you lived in, in a home of addiction. It doesn't mean that at all. Things happen in your life. But when we talk about we unique individuals, and again, in one frame, Dr. Russell Barkley will quote that we're not hard hunters or we're not farmers, but then he will say that we are unique individuals. And then he will say that uh, the caregivers are the shepherds and our job is to guide the sheep to become the best sheep they can be. And I agree with that. And at the same time, I believe that in schools, teachers are taught, they, te- they teach children in a certain way. Let's say normal, t- neurotypical children are taught like dogs. They're obedient, they listen, they, they, they want to please. The problem is, is that teachers are trying to teach sheep to be dogs. Sheep will never be dogs. You know, we do not design a sheep. The sheep are there to be themselves. And our job is to provide a safe environment to nurture them and to love them and to let them become who they are. You know, and there's that saying, right? Everyone is a genius in some way. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. You know, or that other saying, um, you know, you may spend your whole life climbing a ladder to then realize that you're leaning against the the wrong wall. You know, so it's about find your your ladder, you know, because sometimes we try to, uh, even with my son, you know, I have an idea of what I'd like my son to be. You know, there's been even, even at the age he's at now, I wanted him to be a footballer. You know, he's really talented. He played for an academy. He said that he didn't want to do it. So I had to respect it. I had to let let that go. That was my dream. You know, and that's the thing with some parents as well. We try to live our dreams through our children. You know, so he's now choosing a different pathway 
And I say, son, whatever you want to be, I will love you and I'll support you. And that's what they need to know. They need to know they're loved, they're supported, and they're held and they're cared for. Um, and that's really important for these children. So when it comes to the clients, therapy is all about holding the client. When a client comes to me, they want to be held. They want to know they're safe. They want to know that I'm here to support them and I will give them the tools that they need. So when it comes to the ADHD therapy, which means going back in time to deal with whatever, whatever we need to do, deal with, so you're in a really good place to start living in the present and then start working not on those goals. And the, the ADHD coaching from that point on is building on, um, I'm working with client at the moment and she she has got me engaging now with her bosses. Her bosses are paying for one-to-one -one sessions with me saying about how best can I make this work for my staff to make them more productive. So I, I not only work with the client, which is either the child or the adult, I work with the parents to become better parents. I work with employers to become better employers. People need to understand that it's their role as caregivers and providers to provide the support and environment that these people need to flourish and nurture. And that's when you get the most productive people. Yeah, that's, I, I love that. And and I have uh, one of my guests, um, Dr. Marilyn Wedge, who wrote a book uh, called uh, A Disease Called Childhood. She said the same thing. She said, whenever families come to me for ADHD treatment, she said, it's not, I'm not treating the child necessarily. It's almost more like marriage or relationship or parenting therapy, right? Because that's, those are the caregivers. That's, that's, those are the people who will essentially create the environment, as Bruce Lipton would say, the environment's influence, right? Of course, yeah. the co community and the world at large as well. Mm -hmm. But with the parents, you spend most of the time in the early, early years, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it's interesting that we go there because, again, one could easily go, well, but then, so wait, so the parents are to blame? Not to blame, just to be made aware of the fact that they have that much influence, right? And um, the interesting thing there is to me with this whole blame and um, responsibility, right? It's it's a crux, I think, of, of humanity. Like whenever somebody says like, oh, you're responsible, what we hear is it's your fault versus no, you have a responsibility here and you drop the ball. So how are you going to clean it up, right? That's been my big uh, thing with my kids is when I get angry or Last night I got really kind of triggered and angry with my son and I I I, I texted him later because he was already in, in bed and I said, hey, you know, I sorry I got upset. I, I, a lot of anger came up. It's not towards you, um, you know, but at the same time, I really need you to respect our, our ground rules. And he, he understood, but it was important for me to, A, take responsibility and like you said, let him know it's not his fault. He's not unloved now. He's not you know, we don't have anger towards him because of this thing and just let them know and make them feel safe and hold them. So I can, I can definitely relate to that, that safety is the key word here, right? It's feeling unsafe as a child is the key word. We're all humans. And when I look back in my past, especially when my kids were younger, I know that there were things that happened in, in our lives, which were unintended consequences. They never meant to happen. Uh, but I know that it impacted my children in some way through stress or anxiety at that period in their lives. Now, I never intended to cause that to them, but this was a, a consequence of what was going on with me and my wife at the time. You know, And when I speak to families and when 
You know, I have parents that say, right, okay, can you deal with my 16-year-old child or deal with my 12-year-old boy? He's causing problems. He's got ODD, for example. And um, I was, first of all, the child would be very resistant to speak to me because they, they're coming to me as if they are the problem. And my first conversation with them all the time is this. I say, first of all, I want you to know I was once that small 12-year-old boy with ADHD. I was also in trouble at school. I used to misbehave and so on. So I connect with them in that sense. And then I, say, then say, I also have a 12-year-old, I mean, a 16-year-old son with ADHD. So I know it's like to be a parent. My job is to understand what's going on in your life, to see how I can help. And I'm going to speak to your parents to help them understand more about how you think, feel, and behave because I've lived that life. And by doing so, I can encourage them to become better parents for you. So what I'm doing is I'm taking the um, the issue about them being the problem to saying to them, I'm working with you to help them understand, make your life better. You know, and by doing so, it brings the whole family together and it takes it takes understanding and responsibility. You know, there's a reason why Johnny could be being loud or tapping too much and stuff like that. And explain to the parents, they have complete lack of awareness. You know, there's a reason why Johnny keeps making the same mistakes before, because he has no hindsight. He cannot learn from the past because that mem- part of the memory doesn't work. At the same time, he's got no foresight. So therefore, he's got no understanding of consequences. So when he keeps making these mistakes and causing harm or whatever, he's never intended to do it. This is a result of how this ADHD mind works. I have a question for you here, and I don't think I've ever posed the question this way, but and it's a bit of a trick question, but let's see where it goes. I'm not testing you. I'm just exploring with you here. When do you think, when do you think ADHD starts? I ask myself the question myself. So all I can say from my personal experience is that I've had trauma in my life. I've had high levels of stress in my life. So I was co-regulating with someone that lived in a high stress environment. Is it genetics? I do not know. And no one I've been taught by has proven to me there is an ADHD gene. We know there's associations to uh, dopamine. We know there's uh, norepinephrine as well, which helps with lack of attentiveness. Um, But when it comes to going back to the root cause, um, I'm unsure. But then I'll say to myself as well, does it really matter? It's, 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 It's nice to know, but does it really matter? Then there's other questions. Is there an ADHD and tra- traumatic experiences? Are they one and the same? What are two separate things that show up in the same in the same way? You know, do you have issues with executive functions through trauma, the same as you do with um, genetics, if that's the case? So I have many questions, and there's so many unknowns, uh, which makes it very interesting. I work with what presents themselves today, and what presents themselves today. Someone doesn't come come to me with a genetic issue. They come to me with a traumatic issue. So I'll work with that. Yeah. I love your answer. And I I would agree that ultimately it doesn't matter. And I have to remind myself sometimes. I mean, I am on a path of really similar path where I believe that because there's still two sides, right? It doesn't really matter. And at the same time, if trauma healing shows uh, progress, like in the case of our son, then I can report that story. It could be an isolated story, and you know, mm. but I can share that in the hopes other parents may seem see similar results. Or there's the other side of like, well, why does it really matter? 
it's here, it's a disorder, let's medicate, let's just manage it, right? So that brings me to the question of how do you feel about medication and how does it come up with your clients and what's your relationship to ADHD medication? So it's really mixed. I have I have um, clients that use it. I have clients that live without it. I have clients that have tried it and it just never worked for them. Uh, they never went back through the titration pr process with the psychiatrist or doctor. Um, so it's a mixed bag. It works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. Like loads of different medication because there's, there's side effects and, and so on. Some people are anti-meds anyway. You know, my son was diagnosed and he was offered medication and he said no. So we wanted to work around that and create an environment that he could live without medication, knowing that he would behave a certain way, knowing how to find ways to manage that. Um, what's What happens in the UK, I don't know what it's like in the States, um, there's a real crisis in, in the UK, first of all, with medication because they don't have enough medication. So now there's a shortage and the pharmacies are saying that there's no more meds until December, um, which is causing, yeah, so, which is causing a, a problem. Um, so we had something similar with uh, women with menopause with HRT um, that couldn't get their HRT um, medication. So there was lots of crazy women running around trying to find this medication on the black market as well. Um, that's a, I, I just want to say that's a, that's an actually that's a real problem. And what I mean by that is uh, when a pharmaceutical company or companies have that much power to, whether it's intentional or not, I won't, I won't go further than that, but, uh, you know, to, to showcase the power that those medications have with this dependency that's showing up and suddenly there's a lack and people are losing it. I mean, it says something about our society, whether you believe in meds or not, you know, that's a scary thought. Well, you know, for a lot of people, you've seen um, the documentary on Netflix, Take Your Pills. You know, for, for many people, there is a there is a black market and there's a misuse of it. So there's over-prescribing, there's over-using it as well, or over-misuse. Um, so in the UK, what's happened is that ADHD has just blown up. You know, everyone wants to be diagnosed. Everyone believes they have it. So what's happening is that you have these, um, you've got the private healthcare and we've got a national health service. The National Health Service, if you want to be diagnosed for ADHD, there is at least a five-year waiting list for adults, and it's three years for children. Wow. So if you get diagnosed on the NHS and you get um, they prescribe you medication, the medication's for free. Now, if you go the private route, you've got to pay, say, $1,000 to be diagnosed, and then you have to stay on the private prescription, which is like $200 a month. Now, what happens is is people's, people go for the private diagnosis, they take the prior diagnosis and then try to get free medication on the National Health Service. The National Health Service is saying no. Question is why? Is it because it's too costly? Is it because the medic um, the um, big pharma companies can't produce enough um, medication? There are so many issues and questions around this as to why they are slowing down the production and um, availability of ADHD medication. The problem is now people are being diagnosed and cannot be prescribed. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the whole, well, there's two thoughts that come to mind. One is kind of a joke I always make. It's like, if we took all the people that were diagnosed with ADHD so far, and we add all the ones that are undiagnosed, and we add all the ones that um, are just discovering that they have it or their child, 
if we add all those numbers up, I believe we've already reached a tipping point where that's the new normal. You know what I mean? Like where we can no longer say, oh, that's a normal person and that's an ADHD person. So then the question is, well, if let's say 51% of the population has ADHD, I'm just making this up, then what's the next unnormal? What's the next abnormal, right? Then suddenly that's kind of common. Like, I don't know, it's just fun to play around with that. It's like if everybody suddenly has this function turned on of like, I can take in more information, I can hear more things, I can, you know, the hunter needs to be more aware that that part of the operating system has been activated. Now we're all that. Now what, right? Do we still need to medicate or do we then adjust our school systems? Do we then adjust our social systems or everything to have all these now what we call neurodiverse people feel finally like we're the norm? I don't know. It's just a fun idea, fun idea for a movie maybe. Well, look even deeper into that and I thought about this as well because we think a lot, right? So we do a lot of blue sky thinking. So one of my other thoughts was, to medicate is to make you more normal, to make you fit into the neurotypical environment at school. Yeah. Now, if you in, in England, for example, if you're autistic, there are specialist autistic schools to accommodate for people with autism. Okay. Now, so when you when you're autistic and you have flappy hands, the teachers pay no attention to that because they know that that's something that people with autism do. But when you start tapping and, and being distracted in class, you get in trouble. And even though you've been diagnosed with ADHD, so my son was, um, he was told he had his exams recently and they did, um, they were doing study at, um, at school. He was told to do home study at school because he was too distracted in class, even though he's been diagnosed with ADHD. So what you're doing is that you're punishing him for a trait which is normal to him and he is unaware of. Yeah. You know, um, medication. So going back to medication, which is really interesting, again, with my son, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he was against medication. But then he got caught one time smoking cannabis. So being an open-minded person, I'm very curious. I said, look, I need to understand. And this is what I say to people with addictions. I said, when you choose to do something, there's always a reason. There's always a positive intention. So I want to understand what that drug or drink is doing for you because it's doing something for you in that moment. It's either giving you comfort, relaxing you, making you feel alive, helping you escape and so on. And when they tell me, oh, it helps me relax because I'm really stressed. And I'll say, well, what's wrong with using something that makes you relax when you're stressed? Nothing. So you're compassionate to what you're using. Let's find a smart and healthier way to find yourself to be more relaxed, less stressed. So with my son, I asked him that question. And he said, Dad, it calms my mind down. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So you don't want to take the medication that calms your mind down, but you want to take a street drug. You know, and the light bulb popped up, popped up then, you know, so it's understanding why people choose not to take medication, but then they are, um, they're taking cannabis, something popular here is ketamine. So I don't know if you know much about ketamine, but especially the young, young people, late teens and twenties with ADHD, they take ketamine. And um, I've got a client that takes it and he writes down notes of what the experience is all about. But you know, ketamine now is now being used in um, so um, it's very interesting that people are self-medicating themselves with ketamine to help calm down their ADHD. Yeah, I've I haven't heard that here. Although I have to say, I'm not on social media. Uh, there's probably some Reddit posts and a lot of different things, right? I'm sure. 
but I ha it hasn't found its way to me, which means it's not what I would call mainstream in a sense that me and my generation, my friends would know about it. But that's certainly uh, that's certainly interesting to hear. And again, it doesn't surprise me. Whatever gives you that outer body checking out, numbing out, uh, coping with life kind of uh, results, right? Becomes your your self medicating, right? Yeah. Versus um, medicated through pills. It's interesting with with our son. Uh, I we weren't going to medicate, and then about a year ago, he mentioned something. Oh, I heard, you know, I, I want to try it, and we were like, okay, um, let's think about that. And I decided to get a supplement that is from a company called Neora, and it's like a brain enhancement supplement. And I said, let's start with something natural that's powerful. And we started, and <laughs> two days in, he's like, I hate taking pills. I can't do it. I can't, I don't want, you know what? Forget about it. I don't want to do it. We're like, okay, that's fair, right? But staying open to it. Like if he comes back, you know, during high school, like you said, asking those questions, like, well, mm -hmm. how come you, what is it that you're hoping this would uh, improve in your life? Right. I think it's a yeah. very, very important question. Yeah. For me, to be clear, medication for some people has a role to play. You know, many people that take the medication, they're happy for it and they recognize it works for them. It gives them focus and attention in, in class and they don't use it at weekends. So it's managed in a really responsible way. Whereas um, you have these other scenarios where it's the parents that are forcing the kids to do it to calm themselves down because they're too disruptive, too hyperactive. Now, you, you will also hear conversations with um, the professionals and the doctors that say um, ADHD medication is a bit like diabetes medication. You know, it's not there to get rid of diabetes, it's to prevent secondary pain or any type of different, right? So this is about trying to control the ADHD symptoms or traits. Yeah. But it's all about how much it impacts the people around. Them. So like you, does it impact you enough to say, I need to medicate my child? Right. No, it never has. I mean, do, during the terrible twos or threes, right, where you're like, oh, this is really intense. Uh, nobody mm. war they warned us, but you can't know until you're there. But that's just that's developmental, right? It's not he's now he's no longer hyperactive. He's not very impulsive. Um, so those have dissolved over seven years of, of therapy, of changing diet, moving closer to nature, uh, you know, Things like that. So it's, I believe that those those will show up differently, obviously, in in different kids. But there was never a reason to be like forceful and say, "Oh my God, we can't." Let's just medicate them and calm them down. You know. Mm. But but for me, it's about the the support, the accommodations. They call it scaffolding. We had the term term scaffolding before. You know, to provide that ramp. You know, if you had if you had a child that arrived at school in a wheelchair and the access was stairs. You know, they would provide a ramp and they would keep that ramp available for that young person through their duration at school. And this is what people with who are um, who are neurodiverse in all different ways, you know, is to provide them the support that they need to help them be um, as productive and um, and develop as much as they can. Well, to me, that's and I'm sure you've thought about this as well, like in the blue sky thinking, and it's not really even that blue sky, is that how come our schools aren't neurodiverse, meaning how come we don't have different departments for kids who have audiovisual learning versus right? So, so that you can literally have a school that caters to 
all these different types of learning styles, which we now know are part of the human spectrum. But we yeah. still haven't, you know, we're still outcasting, even though people say, well, that's not true. It's not, we're not really outcasting. Yeah. We're supportive. No, no, no. We're not inclusive. We're not, we're inclusive as in like, you're fucked up. So we'll include you, but not as in like, no, you're one of the main categories our school should cater to. And then we have another main category. And then, right. That to me is just next. That's the next level. If we don't go there, then we have a problem. Yeah. And that was my point earlier. And I was saying about this, I was talking about the autistic school that specializes in working with people with autism. Now, you're either neurotypical at school or you're a problem. And if you're a problem, you'll be punished unless you have uh, the inattentive, uh, the, uh, the, um, you're inattentive, you don't have the hyperactive part. So, and this is why so many girls during school years are not picked up with having ADHD because they're not hyperactive, you know? So because they're yeah. quiet and because they keep themselves to themselves, they're not a problem. But they have the same issues in terms of concentration and focus as the other children because they're not loud, they're not brash, they're not being punished. They're, they're the forgotten children. But with girls, they get um, go into their twenties and then they start to pick up then about um, having ADHD. Um, but like what you said, and part of NLP is that um, we we learn in three three main ways: either visually, audially, or kinesthetically. So most teachers are taught teaching their children in a visual way. But if you learn by listening and hearing, um, you're going to miss some points because you're not seeing it. And if you're kinesthetic, which is 5% of the population, it's even worse because you're all about touching and feeling and being practical. So if you're a kinesthetic child in school, you're the ones who are going to struggle the most. Now, teachers never pick up on this kind of stuff. And it's very easy because if I asked Roman, do you understand what I'm saying? You'll say, oh, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Or I feel what you're saying. I really pick up your submodality. I already know how you learn. Yeah. And that's frustrating because there are there are different ways of teaching, there's different ways of people learning, but it's not recognizing it. They just stick to one binary way. Well, I think it's because we're still, I mean, it's a simplified answer, but we're still taught to believe that there is a norm, right? But not norm as a scientific method of research where there's a norm right you create the sort of average right curve you flatten the curve to an average norm we actually think there's a way to be that is called normal that will then solve everything and to me that that we can't progress forward if we keep uh, comparing anyone or anything to a norm right because mm -hmm. that changes like we just said it could change that Five years from now, the 51% of the population has what we call ADHD. Well, there's a new norm in town. What are we going to do? Yeah. There's a there's a saying. I can't remember the quote exactly. But it says something along the lines of teachers teach children the way they want teachers to teach them. But children need to be taught the way they want to learn. And that's the difference. I love that. I love that. And Sean, one question that I don't ask often because I've niched myself in as a, a, a podcast or you know a movement for parents uh, uh, with children with ADHD, and specifically because I have a son uh, with boys. But in, from your experience, from having uh, uh, worked with and studied with with let's call them all experts on ADHD and trauma and so forth, why do you think that it's mainly boys? that are considered to have ADHD versus girls? It's a much smaller number of girls. I mean, that's a big question, but what's your yeah. take on that? So when the baby is born, uh, in the first two years, 
um, in particular boys, they have an, um, an overdeveloped motor strip in the back of their brain, which means they're hyperactive from a young age. So even when they're in nursery or kindergarten, these will be the boys that climb the highest tree, jump off the biggest wall and so on. And this is why they start to have injuries. And, and by the way, when, <laughs> when kids are very hyperactive and they take bigger risks, guess what? They have more trauma, either physically or emotionally. Um, for some reason, um, this development of the motor strip is with boys more than girls. And it shows up more in boys because they're hyperactive, they take more risks, so they cause more problems. You know, when we go back to, um, you know, when I spoke about my story, when we talk about the stats of a typical boy growing up, and, and sometimes of women as well, but the, the ADHD kid is much more likely to fail at school, to drop out of college, to be in trouble with the police, be involved in crime, uh, gets involved in drinking and drugs and other addictions. They have driving offences because they're, they're thrill seekers, so they start to speed, driving illegally, uh, teenage pregnancies, uh, they're in and out of jobs because they can't um, manage themselves in, in, in uh, employment, so they either get sacked or they leave because they don't believe they're good enough. They have poor management, which leads to debt. Um, they have failed relationships, so they break down, they have divorces and, and so on, uh, and they have failed businesses. They go bankrupt, you know. These are just things to look forward to as a young young man with ADHD. So we have to be mindful of it so we don't fall down in pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I mean, that's definitely something to manage uh, or many things to manage, right, as a parent for your child and as an adult for yourself. Um, I just want to go back to the girls. So uh, this is definitely a landmine, a minefield, as you've described it. So I'm going to throw something out there because um, from research, there's a lot of um, girls that were um, sexually abused, right, in their, in their childhood or later on, teenage years. And also there's a lot of girls that um, have been diagnosed with ADHD that have this sort of trauma. But then I thought, well, it's very prevalent, this abuse. And so how come not more girls have ADHD? Again, linking trauma and ADHD. But I wonder if it has something to do as well with, you know, anything sexual, any sexual trauma is much more taboo and sensitive and will be sort of tapped down and could become could essentially showcase itself more as depression uh eating disorders anxiety and other things do you how do you feel about that because because girls obviously also have trauma clearly yeah and sexual trauma well it happens to boys and girls uh sexual trauma right. with with girls can lead to many different issues as they get older so for example if a girl was sexually abused by her uncle or dad or someone from the community, um, and it's all about, like I said, it's not what happens, it's the feeling and the perception and the belief system that's created from that point. So, for example, if someone was um, sexually abused by their dad, for example, um, their belief could be, I was sexually abused because um, I'm attractive. So I don't want to be abused anymore. So the way to avoid this is not to be attractive anymore. So they put on loads of weight. So I, I deal with people with eating disorders, comfort eating. We find out that like they they weigh more than they want to. And when we go back into find out what the trauma was, it was all about they got sexually abused and this was their, this was their coping mechanism. So it goes back to the discussion again about the coping mechanism, why you do the things you do. Because it does not make sense to eat a pack of cookies at 10 o'clock in the evening on a Wednesday night. 
this is not about food and fuel. This is about emotional nourishment because it's giving you some comfort where you were around your nan's house when you're upset and she sat you on her lap and she gave you some cookies and that gave you love, connection and nurture. So this is what they're trying to find again. Um, with, with my clients that I've had with ADHD, I don't recall anyone really in particular that the trauma was sexual. Yeah. yeah. I've had many clients, I've had many women with, with issues with sexual trauma, uh, but the it, it was it was ended up being alcoholism, it ended up being, you know, eating disorders and so on. Right. Um, which, which that's not to say they never had it. It wasn't a presenting issue that they or it may have been undiagnosed as well. And if it's ADD or sorry, inattentive um, when it's in, inattentive, so there's less hyperactivity, it's less um it's less visible for me to see it. Right, right. Which then would make sense what you were just sharing about the boys being in overdrive with hyperactivity. And for the girls, because you don't see that, you're not seeing underneath the hood what's really uh, keeping them uh, um, unattentive or, you know, distracted, whatever. And it may showcase in a much calmer way, which uh, when you go to nurseries, as you know, girls seem always a little more calm. Um, so I was just curious. I mean, I, 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 I try to explore these things and, you know, but um, so we talked about medication, right? And and then obviously you have some clients that take medication, it works for them or it doesn't, or they don't. Mm. It seems like you're really um, focused on and believe in the power of, of trauma healing. And one of the questions I always have is like, do you believe, can you trauma proof a child? Can you trauma-proof a child? I, as you mentioned, I also run men's retreats. I've got one in Ibiza um, in a couple of weeks. And um, I run a retreat in Ibiza um, in May. And one of the guests there was Argentinian. And what was really interesting, as part of my package for the retreat, I do a 28-day therapy package before you come on site. And the reason why I do that is because I want to assess the person before they come on. And I want to uh run through any areas of concerns or any issues they want to address before they come on because i want to get them into like a peak state before they come into retreat so they get the most out of it and um i had an argentinian guy who came to me with uh, issues around anger um but learning from speaking to him it's very common in argentina that children from a young age see a therapist every three to six months it's like going to the dentist for a checkup and by doing that he said it helped clear so much stuff growing up through childhood. So you weren't carrying anything. You were you are unloading with the therapist. If there was more work to go into, they would spend more time with them. But it, it, it was it was the norm over there. And I was fascinated by that. I just thought, how much would be healed if um, because children are much, much more open and honest. So, like I said, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist. So I use that um, more so with adults, but with children, they're much easier to go into a hypnotic state because they're already in an alpha state all the time, you know? So it's easier for me to get them into this, this state where they can just be honest and talk about their feelings. And it just comes out, especially children with ADHD. It comes out, it's like Tourette's. It just comes out. They just speak their mind. Yeah. And it's really interesting that the earlier that I can engage with young people, the more they can get some clarity and get some perspective and it lets them see the world in a different light. It lets them see that they're not a problem. It lets them see that they just think and feel and behave differently. And it's the people around them's role to take care of them and give them the life that they should have. 
I love that answer, A, because I didn't know that about Argentina. I have a friend, an Argentinian friend I'm going to see for lunch next week. I'll, I'll talk to him about it. He seems very regulated as a human. Um, but also, but yeah, but also just what you mentioned as, as the answer to that, it's like, I don't think we can trauma proof children, but it sounds like that's a, a proven system that allows for, you know, we should say it this way. We can't avoid having these intense experiences in life, but how we react to them, right? How we emotionally react can be uh, remedied or helped along or healed by frequent visits to, for example, a therapist or groups or whatever, whatever works for a child. And I think that's great. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, look, the, the, the issue is this, is that with trauma, you can't see it. Now, if you think about it, if you're walking along the road and a bus knocks you down and you've got a broken knee, so you've got the torn ligaments, the bones are broken, um, there's no point putting a Band-Aid on it, right? You need some professional help. Now, when your knee is in such pain, the first thing the paramedics would do was put morphine in it to give you that pain relief, okay? Now, if you had really bad toothache, excruciating toothache, they would give you Novocaine to numb the pain. Okay, but when it comes to these deep emotional wounds that no one can see, when someone takes cocaine or when someone takes heroin, they're a drug addict, drug addict, they've got a problem. You know, they are just trying to give themselves pain relief as well. Now, the thing is, when you see physical accidents, when you see that physical pain, you do something about it. Yeah, there's no point putting a Band-Aid over it. You need to take it to professional help so it can be fixed properly to recover, you know, to heal, to integrate. And... Um, we don't do the same with these emotional traumas. Now, I say to my clients, when we talk about investing in themselves and personal investment, you know, we talk about the cost to do this work. And I'll ask the question, you drive a car, right? How often do you service that car every year? Why do you service that car every year? So it can run optimally and fix any problems that, that occur. Um, how often do you upgrade your phone? Every two, three years. Okay, why do you do that? What are run on the best software uh, programs possible? Why don't you do that with your mental health? You know, why do you not put these kids in for a check-in once a year to make sure they're running on the best programs? They're not living in these old stories. Because remember, from when you're a very young child, from when you're three, four, five years old, your parents told you a story about Santa Claus. And you believe that story to be true because you trusted your parents. And you couldn't question it because you had not created that sort of cognitive part of the brain from seven years old. So you believe everything to be true. So therefore, you lived your life until, say, 11, 12, 13, realize the story was not true, you stop believing, you, you change the story, you know, because once you question the belief, you change the way you think and feel about it. The problem is, is that when you're three, four, five, six, around those years, and you feel in that moment that your parents don't love you, it means I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough, you know, no one loves me, I'm a failure, um, you know, I'm not significant, I'm not important, all these kind of stories that we do not change because we just live our lives without questioning it. And every time something happens, and it reinforces that belief, there you go, that means I'm not good enough, that means I'm a failure, that means that no one likes me. You keep reinforcing this. And every time something happens in your life today, the event, someone says something to you today, it makes you feel like um, no one likes you. So it reinforces this belief and it touches that pain point. You've got this box of pain of all these memories, these experiences, of whenever you felt like you were good enough and it triggers everything. But by doing a the therapy, by doing the work, you let it all go. You reframe it, you realize you are loved. You are good enough. You are worth it. And by the time you reframe it, you start looking at the world in a different light. You've cut free from those old memories, those old beliefs. 
Yeah, and I think we have two choices, right? We can uh, do it on an ongoing basis and chip away at it, or we can wait till, you, you know, in my case, till I'm in my 40s and finally go back and start chipping away. But I have to chip harder. I have to chip more chunks, you know, which I want to. I don't want to waste time. Uh, it's not a race, but uh, I think, I do believe that, yeah, if we start earlier on, then there's less to uh, less to heal later on. I mean, there's always going to be healing that needs to be done, of course. Look, it's how many times being at school when something went wrong or you had a breakdown in your relationship or you've, you've gone out on a bender again, you know, when you've got your head in your hands and you say, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep doing the same things over and over again? The question isn't what's wrong with me. The question is what happened to me? What happened to me to make me think, feel, and behave the way I do? Why don't I learn these lessons? I don't learn these lessons because we have something called hindsight, which is missing from us. Why do I keep making the same mistakes and keep messing up? Because we have got no idea of foresight. We don't understand consequence that it happens. And it's only then because we've got this issue with time. It's either now or not now. So we don't look forward to a week or a year or a month because as far as, far as we're concerned, it's not now. So we focus on the now. I love that. And by the way, the Santa Claus story, it was great because my kids, uh, they never believed in it. At an early age, they were they were just like, no. And I didn't, I couldn't lie to them. I was like, well, you know, it is what it is. And I explained it to them. And to this day, I believe that was not a bad decision. You know, a lot of people be like, oh, you crushed the dream of Santa Claus and Christmas and all that. No, they just knew. They knew, you know, and I didn't want to create an environment where we have to lie to them because of what? Why? Exactly. Think about that. Think about that, right? Parents all around the world are lying to their children, convincing them that there is a story that they have to follow, a story that they have to believe, you know? And my daughter's 12. She just realized now this year Santa's not real and she feels betrayed she feels let down. She feels humili humiliated because her friends for the last two years have told her it's not real. And she believes it because she had to believe it. Otherwise, there wouldn't be no presence for her. You know, so it gets even worse. Well, it's I, and I think it's different to believe in magic or extraordinary out outcomes in life than it is to believe in what essentially Coca-Cola created. Right. The Santa Claus we know today, Ooh. which is really a a hallmark car card a fable that's supposed to bring warm and fuzzy feelings but that can be achieved in different ways it doesn't have to be a, a story we believe in uh, when parents are lying to you right and again nothing wrong those of you parents who have this tradition and you believe that's fine that's that's okay i just could not do it because our kids were like i'm not buying it doesn't make any sense mm. you know how's it going to no, he was just saying, I don't know how old he was, four or five. He said, how can he be in all these same places at the same time? That's impossible. So for me to say, well, if you believe in miracles, well, that one's not a miracle. That one's actually made up. But I do believe in miracles. I've seen them happen, right? Yeah. So where's the truth? You know? yeah. yeah. What else have you lied about? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, that was probably a moment of like telling the truth and getting better at telling the truth because – as you know, not as just as an ADHD or as a people pleaser, but as a as an addict, uh, hiding, omitting, lying, cheating, suppressing. Right? Those are sort of common reflexes that I've come to. Coping mechanisms. 
Exactly. Coping mechanisms, the way to please everybody, not rock the boat, right? The way to get what I want, because I'm mm -hmm. afraid I'm not good enough, so I can't have what I want. All those things are, it's a beautiful story. Well, Sean, you and I could go on for hours, but I think we're going to have to do a part two at some point. Um, sure. It's been a fascinating conversation. I think we've been, we've gone on several journeys inside of this conversation, and I'm just really, um, I admire you for you know, for the life you have created, um, you had to go through what you had to go through, but for going through it all, healing from it, owning it, and now turning it into your livelihood and making a difference for uh, children, adults, families, I think it's admirable. Uh, I'm inspired by it. So I just want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. And thank you for making time for being on the podcast. And uh, I will put your uh, website in the show notes so people know where to find you. If somebody wants to go to Ibiza anytime soon, go to the website now when you hear this podcast. There's an amazing workshop happening. And if you want to reach out to Sean, do so directly through his uh, website. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll do a part two. And I'll announce that, of course, before. So thanks again, Sean. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Welcome.